Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to a very familiar passage, Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. And simply to set the stage for my comments this evening, let me read you the first three verses. It begins with a very stinging rebuke and ends with a passionate prayer. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away, and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. And now listen to his passion. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I'll bring them back to their pasture, where they'll be fruitful and increase in number. Listen to his prayer, his intention, his determination. I will play shepherds over them. Shepherds who will tend them. I wonder what that means. Do you feel tended? If we were to offer testimonies as to what it means to be shepherded, what would be your experience of being tended well by a shepherd? When you're tended well, you know that you've been tended well because it says that those who tend them will see the fruit of the people that they tend will no longer be afraid. No longer be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. I want us again to commit our teaching time to the Lord. Father, it seems to me that your spirit is moving in a very clear direction in many, many places. And in so many ways, you're, you're moving with, with, with so many purposes, of course, and so many different agendas that you're accomplishing. But it seems to me that there's a, that there's a real work that your Spirit wants to be doing amongst us to, to value those who have suffered and walked and abided and struggled and despaired and recovered and who know the truth of what Peter said, that after suffering for a little while, that Christ will himself again appear and restore and make strong and firm and steadfast. And Lord, it seems to be a very deep passion within many hearts, and you've burdened me with it, that that as we grow older, that we'll realize that our usefulness actually can increase. And Father, how to pull this off, I just don't know. Because so many younger folks look at those of us who are growing older and think we're out of touch, And, Father, maybe we're out of touch with a lot of things that they're in touch with, but, Father, maybe we're in touch with some things that they need to be in touch with. Father, deliver us from any arrogance with that thought and restore to us a spirit of gratitude for whatever measure that's true. Whatever it means to link up with other people that if we interact with them, your spirit could move and we could actually tend and restore through your power. However that's supposed to work, Father, give us a vision for it that will be so strong 
and so real within us that whatever the discouragements and the frustrations and the obstacles and the hindrances and the problems and the difficulties and the failures and all the things that aren't going to go right as we seek to shepherd and we're not listened to and we say stupid things and people don't respond that will not give up on a vision that's from you. Father Phyllis, with a, with a sense that we heard about the other night when someone quoted from Peter as an old man, as a fellow elder, telling those to shepherd, that part of the flock that's appointed to our care, teach us those few that are appointed to our care and help us to enter the battle for their souls and the power of the Spirit. Father, use this evening for whatever purposes you have. We yield our agendas to yours. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Peter Kraft, a philosopher at Boston College who has written a number of books on God and Christianity, a very interesting man, tells the story in one of his books, a book on death that's called Love is Stronger Than Death. He tells the story at the end of the time some years ago when he and his wife took their five-year-old daughter to the doctor's thinking that there was perhaps a little concern. She was showing a few symptoms, uh, losing her balance a bit and complaining of headaches, and they had no idea what it was, but had no reason to feel particularly alarmed. The doctor said those awful words. After examining her, we need to refer her for more specialized tests. He tells the story that when the tests were completed by the neurologist, he called Dr. and Mrs. Kraft into his office and said these words to them, your five-year-old daughter has a large brain tumor. His comment was, when you can't handle truth, you tend to handle facts. Now ponder that. When you can't handle truth, you handle facts. He peppered the doctor with a variety of questions having to do with facts. What are, the statistics, what are the statistics on a five-year-old child who develops a brain tumor? How often is it benign or how often is it malignant? Tell me what recovery rates are. Tell me how soon you will operate. Tell me what the likelihood is that it will be malignant. And if it is malignant, tell me what the survival rates are. In other words, give me all the facts because I can't face the truth. That's my little girl. I read that just a few weeks ago and I was mentioning that to a friend of mine whose father died about two years ago. And he he told me immediately as I said that, he teared up and he said that that relates to something that happened to me when my dad died. His dad, not having made a profession of faith that was clear at all, and he had no idea what his father's spiritual status really was. And, of course, he was terribly burdened by this. And uh, when his father died, as they greeted those who came to the reception, the questions that were asked had all to do with facts. Questions like, did you leave your mother well-insured? Funny the questions we ask at these times. Your father had immense hospital bills. Was the health insurance adequate to cover? The answer was no. There were $80,000 in bills for which they had no resources. And the questions about facts kept coming. And my friend, when he heard this comment from Dr. Crave, he told me that he wanted to scream and say, the facts aren't the point. There's a truth here. My father's died. Peter Kraft, of course, is talking about a bad truth, a difficult truth, saying that there are truths that are so difficult and so painful that we simply cannot face them and we hide from them by running behind facts and becoming absorbed in detail and structure and don't let the full weight of the tragedy hit us. 
But it occurred to me, as I pondered those words from Dr. Craig, it occurred to me that there's another truth that's wonderful, that is almost too wonderful for us to enter into, and as a result, we stay away from it by entering into certain facts. Let me twist the meaning of Kreef's words and suggest that there is a, a truth that's so profoundly good that when we're confronted with it, there's something in us that shies away from it and retreats into a formulaic procedural approach to relationship that doesn't allow the expression of a deep truth that is so profoundly wonderful that we don't know how to handle it. Turn to John 17 as a bit of a text for tonight, and I want you to notice a passage that speaks of this truth that is very difficult to grasp, difficult for me. A truth that makes me uncomfortable that I want to read by rather quickly and I don't really want to ponder. John 17, the Lord's Prayer, the high priestly prayer as is commonly known, in verse 20, the Lord turns away from speaking about those who are immediately with him and begins to pray for all of us. My prayer, he says in John 17, 20, is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. What's his prayer? What's this dying man's prayer? What was the joy that was set before him as he endured the cross, as he began to face the reality of becoming sin for you and me? What is it that brought him comfort as he faced the reality of his yielding himself to his father's will, which meant separation from his father? What was it that was on his mind that he valued as he faced death? And what he valued was that you and I would really get along with each other. That you and I would become one in a powerful way. But listen to the extent that he's talking about. My prayer is that they'll become one, Father, and they'll become one at the same level that you and I, Father, are one. That my people are going to enjoy Trinitarian unity. Father, I pray that they'll be one, just as you are, and notice the strange phrase, in me, and I am in you. Hear the, hear the interpenetration, the interanimation, as the theologians speak about it, between the members of the Trinity, and saying, I want them to be one, just as, in the same way as the Father and Son are one, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Schaefer's comment on that verse is that the way the Christian world gets along is a final apologetic for the faith. Verse 22 is what I want to focus on for just a moment as a bit of a springboard for my comments this evening. Listen to our Lord's remarkable words. I have given them that's you and me the glory. You all have the glory? What on earth does that mean? I have given them the glory that you gave me. What glory did the Father give the Son? Didn't the Son have glory from eternity past as the eternal Son? Wasn't he a member of the Godhead, the eternal God, for eternity? Of course. And yet here we seem to catch the thought that at the Incarnation, the Father gave a glory that some theologians refer to not as the essential glory, which belonged to Jesus as deity for eternity, but he gave him an acquired glory that went beyond the essential glory of deity that was his because of the Incarnation. I have given them the glory... Which can't mean deity, because you and I are never deity. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Whatever glory the Father gave the Son, He's given to you and me. And He's given that to you and me for a purpose. What's the purpose? So that they might be one the way we are. This, to me, is a very central text in the idea of shepherding. There's something about 
what the, the, the Lord has done. He's, he's given me something. He's given you something, which here in this text he calls the glory. And this glory that he's given me is something that, when it's released from my being, when it comes out of me toward you, a unity develops between us that I believe is a profoundly healing unity of both of our souls. And it's a unity which actually parallels, in some mysterious measure, the unity which exists among the Trinity. Folks, that's big stuff. I'm out of my league. Y'all know that. I don't know what I'm talking about. But it's here, so we've got to consider it. Well, what's he talking about? Let's, let's ponder this together tonight a little bit as a context for thinking about what is it that you and I as elder shepherds have to give to others that actually could be healing. You see, the reason that I've given up my practice as a psychologist and the reason that I'm going in very different career directions is, is largely because of this verse. Because for so many years as a private practitioner, 10 years in practice and 14 years in teaching counseling, I believe that what I depended on more than anything else was, was, was my, my training and, and my insights and, and things that I could pull out of a hat and ways that I could explain behavior and, and ways that I could help somebody see that your eating disorder is a result of certain control mechanisms within you, given the way you were raised. And when you understand these interpretive insights that I can give you because I'm professionally trained, then you can be changed. And what occurred to me over the years was that, what does that have to do with Christianity? Is there not something that the Lord has placed within me that he calls here the glory, which if is released, which as it's released from me and poured into another, actually has the power to do for their soul what needs to be done that underlies all of these things we call emotional psychological problems. Caveat, there are a number of problems that have emotional implications that have an organic basis. I'm not speaking of those. For those, a legitimate professional expert is, of course, entirely appropriate. I'm talking about matters of the soul. My question is, if we're going to be elder shepherds, we're going to have to grasp something of what the Lord means when he says, I, Jesus, have given them, you and me, the glory, Father, that you gave me, so that they can be one, they can develop a kind of relationship, that when it is an older to a younger, and when there is a shepherding involved with the sheep, that there is a tending and a caring, so that there's a, there's a moving into the other person's life, that a unity develops that does something in both souls, that when that develops, there's something Trinitarian about the unity that develops develops in that relationship. What are we talking about? Turn back to Genesis 1, and let's see if we can get a big picture context for this. Genesis 1 to a very familiar verse. Then God said in verse 26, you all know it, so I'll begin reading as you're turning. Then God said in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. My question is why? What was God's design when he, when he did that? What did he have in mind? I want you to do something with me that's a little strange. I want you to imagine the unimaginable for just a moment. Wrap your, your minds around something that none of us can wrap our minds around just to help me make a point. I want you to visualize a time when there was only God. If everything is created and everything is but God, we all agree with that, he's the only underived creature. He's not derivative. He's independent. If everything is derived except God, there must have been a time, and again, we're out of our league, but there must have been a time before there was anything, before there were angels. They're created beings. They aren't eternal. So there must have been a time when God said, angels. There was a time when God said, earth, sun, stars, moon. 
There was a time when God created these things, so there must have been a there must have been a point before which there was no one, nothing but God, all three of Him, however you want to put that. Now, picture that time with me. And I know we can't do this, but just picture when there was only God and ask the question Father, Son, and Spirit, nothing else, no one else, what words come to mind to describe what that must have been like for them? These are three persons. We're made in their image. We're persons. Three persons, an eternal community. What do you suppose it was like for the three persons of the Godhead to exist with just themselves? What words come to your mind? Joy? Unity? Tranquility? Peace? Love? Glory? Lonely? How do you feel about that? A lot of folks have commented on that. I wonder if that's accurate. You know the word that comes to my mind? I've asked a number of audiences this, and nobody comes up with the word I want them to come up with. That might say something about me more than the audiences, but the word that occurs to me is the word fun. Did he say that? Another strange person. And I think of the word fun because can you imagine being in a community of three people? Whoever said two's company, three's a crowd, didn't understand Trinitarian theology. Can you imagine being here with three people without an ounce of competition? A group of three people where there's no need to restrain because whatever comes out is terrific. I mean, isn't it true that we all have to exercise self-control? Why? Are we going to have to have the fruit of the Spirit in terms of self-control in heaven? We're going to have to say, oh no, we're not going to do that. I really want to, but no. That's sin. Well, that's not going to be the case. Well, with God, there was no need for self-control in this limited sense because whatever was fully poured out was terrific. You imagine being in a relationship where there's absolute abandonment? C.S. Lewis said somewhere, and whenever you have a quote, you have no idea who said it. Blame it on Lewis. It always works. <laughs> I think it was Lewis who said that... Um, you and I can never afford to be fully ourselves until we get home because who we are is not all that good. But that wasn't true of them. Fully abandoned. Can you imagine that? No jealousy. One for all, all for one. No longer a cliche when applied to them. And I wonder, as I ponder what happened in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when the Godhead got together and said, let's do something. Let's make people. What do they have in their mind? My speculative guess, and you're welcome to reject it, is that they were basically saying something like, this is terrific. Getting along in this kind of community is a wonderful experience. There has nothing yet been created by this time in Genesis 1. There were the angels. There is no one, no creature yet been created who can enter into the level of community that we enjoy amongst the Trinity. Angels long to look into the grace of God, which alone enables a certain kind of community. So angels never have tasted forgiveness because the unfallen ones don't need it and the fallen ones don't receive it. And I think God was saying in Genesis 1, let's create people, let's create a new kind of being, doesn't exist yet, that, are, that is going to be able to enjoy the depths of who we are, 
in a way that nothing, no one yet has been able to, to enjoy the depths of who we are so that when they enjoy the depths of our character that enables us to relate the way we relate with such perfect, fun community, when they get a hold of that and they get that glory within them, they'll be able to form the kind of community that actually reflects the Trinity. Let's give people the fun of profound relationship. That's what I think is happening in Genesis 1. Well, the data doesn't support that. It's not working quite like that. But it was God's intent to see to it that it did, and his plans never fail. Therefore, I make the assumption that God has made it possible for us one day to enjoy perfect community, but now to get a few tastes of it, and the more tastes we get, the more healing is going to develop in our midst, and the more powerful our witness for Jesus is going to be. As I ponder that, I begin to say, all right, well, I'd like to relate to people powerfully. I would like to, I would like to disciple well. I would like to elder well, shepherd well. These terms are, we're throwing around and there's a lot of, um, uh, um, there are synonym meanings, I think, here. We don't want to make too careful distinctions between them. But I would like to, I would like to elder, to pastor, to shepherd, to disciple my, my children well. I would like to shepherd my friends well. I'd like to be shepherded well. I would like that to happen. Now, if I'm going to shepherd well, if I'm going to relate well to somebody else in a way that promotes the kind of healing in their soul and mine that really is possible, then it occurs to me that at least one thing I must do is understand what it is that's within me that is capable of forming Trinitarian-like relationship. Y'all with me in this? Am I losing you yet? I will in about five minutes, so stay with me for the next five at least. Okay. What does it mean to relate with somebody else as an elder shepherd, in a way that actually is Trinitarian in nature, has God given me something to make that possible? Well, as I start pondering that, I start wondering, well, exactly how does the Trinity get along? I was mentioning to Terry Taylor this morning that I listened to one of the men that means the world to me, Jim Houston. He pronounces it Houston, but I find that hard to say. Jim Houston, the founder of Regent College in Vancouver, professor of spiritual theology up there. A couple years ago, he and I were at Biola together, and I heard him speak, and he said this in the course of his address. This is close to verbatim. He said, if the the church is to know another reformation, and he was referring to a reformation, this time on sanctification, how we can change into deep relational maturity. If the church is to know a second reformation, he said, the church will have to recover the doctrine of the Trinity and its implications for human community. And he argued that the Trinity is the least recognized and most pivotal doctrine for how you and I relate to one another. When's the last time you've pondered the Trinity as a model for your marriage? When's the last time you've wondered, wonder how the Father and Son and the Spirit get along? How do they relate? I mean, we know how we and our friends and our spouses relate. How do they relate? We could do something like that? What are we talking about here? Well, when Jim Houston said that comment a couple years ago, I responded the way probably most of you responded. It sounds important, but you haven't got a clue what it means. That's what I felt. I don't know what he's talking about, but I think I want to think about that a little bit. If we're going to recover, if we're going to know another reformation, if we're going to, and I think we're on the verge of that possibility if we learn what it means to be one, if we're going to learn something about the oneness that's available with elder shepherding, I believe, being the pivotal concept to lead the way, if we're going to understand something about that and perhaps, as Houston puts it, usher in a second reformation of what it means to grow in Christ, as the first one established what it means to be justified by Christ and faith alone, 
then the church will have to recover the doctrine of the Trinity and its implications for human community. And I've pondered that and have come up with, a, with, with several borrowed thoughts, not original, but that have meant something to me. And I've done a little bit of study, not much, but a little bit of study on the topic. And what I've come to understand is that theologians love big words that when you hear them, you feel very intimidated by, but when you think about them, they have a lot of meaning to them. Theologians talk about the nature of relationships among the Trinity by using a very strange word called perichoresis. They talk about paracritic relating. It's a word which literally means neighborhood. If you want a, the spelling, if you want the word, if anybody really cares, P-E-R-I, parachoretic, C-H-O-R-E-T-I-C, or parachoresis, ending with the S-I-S. And the word means neighborhood, and the way the theologians have come to use the word is to suggest that when the Trinity relates to one another, there is, there is a pouring of what is most uniquely each member into each other member. There is a pouring of that which is uniquely the Father into the Son and into the Spirit. There is a pouring of that which is uniquely the Son into the Father and into the Spirit. That's why Jesus said, you are in me. That's a, that's a pouring kind of a term. Remember Terry this morning, wrote in Romans chapter 5, that the love of Christ has been what? Poured. See, I believe powerful words for elder shepherds are words that pour, not centrally words that instruct. Words that pour are more powerful than words that instruct. Can I take a little diversion here for a minute? A little diversion now. We'll come back to this if I don't forget it. The diversion is this. I believe that under the New Covenant, the role of the teacher changes. We'll not look at the passages, but Isaiah chapter 30 where the uh, Israelites were saying to their prophets, tell us only pleasant things. We don't want to hear hard things. We don't want to be confronted by the Holy One of Israel. Later in that passage, God says, I will make known your prophets, your teachers to you, and they will stand behind you, and they will say, walk in this way, walk in that way. They will give you instruction. Then in Jeremiah 31, the New Covenant comes in, and God says, in the New Covenant, that there will no longer be teachers to teach you this is the way to know the Lord. But the New Testament makes it clear that there is teaching. There's a, there's a gift of the pastor teacher, so there is the teaching gift. So I would suggest that what's happening is when the covenant shifted from the old to the new, that the nature of teaching changed. And the essential nature of teaching changed in this way, I would suggest, and I wouldn't push this, I won't die for this, so if you want to criticize it, I'll repent. But I believe the nature of teaching changed in this way. In the Old Testament, before the Spirit of God came upon all people, Joel 2 talks about the Spirit of God would be poured about on all people, and in Pentecost that happened. Before that, the teacher could not look at his audience and say, everyone has the Spirit. Couldn't be said, because it wasn't true. The Spirit came upon some, but it wasn't universal among the body, among the church. right? And so therefore, all that was in people was not a new nature, but the old nature. And what then needed to be done, the law had to be pronounced, there had to be instruction in the law for the purpose of what? Getting people to get saved by the law, no, it never happened. Driving people to Christ, the central function of the law, according to Galatians. So the Old Testament, the Old Covenant function of a teacher was to instruct for the purpose of driving to Christ. The New Covenant function of the teacher is to arouse the appetite for Christ that's already there. That's very different. Now there's a pouring that takes instruction and still gives it a legitimate place, but without pouring, the instruction becomes inappropriate. Among the members of the Trinity, there's a, there's a mutual pouring into of one another. When's the last time you felt poured into, into the depths of your soul by some other human being? 
When's the last time you felt something coming out of you that was pouring, that you knew was life-giving? If this sounds inappropriate, please forgive me. I don't mean it to be at all. But I rather think that God designed the husband-wife relationship as a bit of a parable of this. The pouring into and that central act of marital intimacy. So that that which is potentially alive in the recipient has no life until the pouring brings a union. And then in the union, there's life. The Trinity relates perichretically, the theologians say. And you and I are somehow supposed to be involved in relating perichoretically because that's what Jesus prays for. I want them to be one the way you and I are one, Father. And then he says, I've made it possible because I've given them the glory that when they understand and learn to release the glory that's within them, as that glory, whatever that is, we haven't defined it yet, as that glory somehow is released out of the deepest part of our souls into another as a shepherd shepherds, not primarily by instructing, that's included, but by arousing the life that's within because of the energy that sustains all of your movement toward the other. As that takes place, something powerful is released, I would suggest. So enjoy Terry's devotional this morning. One of the comments that he made was that um, self-reflection on the ministry of the navigators is that perhaps over the years there has been a bit of a a task orientation that has perhaps supplanted a relational orientation, and perhaps that's worthy of of concern. And as I said that this morning, the thought occurred to me that a a task orientation can be defined in a variety of ways, but a a task orientation, I would suggest, at least includes this element. You're in a task-oriented relationship when your agenda is to get something across. When you disciple, what's your agenda? is the center of what you're doing trying to get something across. There are wonderful things to get across, don't misunderstand. But if that's the center, I suggest that you're not connecting. You're not pouring. Maybe rather than getting something across, here's the content, I want you to get it, maybe a relational orientation puts at the center getting something out as opposed to getting something across. Releasing a passion that underlies whatever the content, the, le- the legitimate good content might be. Is there, a, is there a release of something within that is poured into the other? Is that the essence of what it means to be an elder shepherd? As I look at the church today, it occurs to me that we have two primary models for change in almost all of our evangelical attempts to help people grow. The two models for change can be put very simply. We have a model which says do it right. If you're not living in a certain way, here are the standards, do it right. And we're going to hold you accountable to doing it right. Here's the standards, here's the principles. We want to hold you accountable to do this, 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 and this. That's the do it right model. In my mind, that's essentially an old covenant model. The law's outside. The therapeutic culture has arisen in response to the moralistic culture, to the do it right model. And the therapeutic culture has come up with a second model of change that basically is fix whatever's wrong. We have do what's right, and then we have the therapist who say, well, you, you legalists are missing everything here. You've got to get therapeutic, and you've got to fix what's wrong. And just telling people what to do isn't the answer. Send them to us as therapists, and we'll fix what's wrong. Don't you realize that they can't do what's right because they've been damaged in their backgrounds, and they're victims of all the atrocious things that have taken place in their background, and you must let us train professionals fix what's wrong. May I suggest there's a third model that we need to at least consider? And the third model 
doesn't argue against the legitimacy of doing what's right, because we should do what's right. We're people who, meant, who are meant to obey. We're supposed to do what we're told. No question about that. It doesn't question that there are some things within the human psyche that maybe need to be explored and thought about. But maybe the center of what change is all about is not do what's right or fix what's wrong. Maybe the center, the center is release what's good. Maybe there is an appetite within, which we talked about last night, that the elder shepherd is looking to arouse as he or she pours perichoretically into another. Another brief diversion. As I think about how the Trinity relates and how I want to understand something about whatever it is within me that Jesus calls the glory that enables me to relate perichoretically, that enables me to relate the way the Trinity relates, as I ponder that and start thinking about, well, then how does the Trinity relate? There, there's all sorts of hints in the Scripture for how the Trinity relates. And one of the, one of the neatest hints in the Scripture that I want to mention just in passing, because it would take too long to develop fully, but one of the neatest hints in Scripture is to notice in the Gospel accounts when the Father spoke to the Son. Did you ever think about that? When did the Father, while the Son was on earth for 33 years, when did the Father actually speak from heaven to or on behalf of the Son? And there are three times he did that. The first time was when? Baptism. Second time was? Transfiguration. He spoke to Peter, actually, and James and John, but about the Son. But the Father, the father shouted from heaven. Third time is less well known in John chapter 12, when the Greeks wanted to see Jesus and... And uh, Jesus gave this strange response and talked about, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then after talking about that for a little bit, he turns to heaven and he says, Father, the hour has come, and what shall I say? Take it away from me. No, it's for this reason I came. Father, glorify your name. That's when the third shout came, and the Father said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. Three shouts from heaven. And I think every one of those shouts reflects something of the way those two got along. Because the Bible says in Mark chapter 1 of the baptism, the implication there, or the actual wording there, is the heavens were torn open. Folks, that's passion. The heavens were torn open, and the Father, the Father said to the Son, the, the, the Spirit was sending on a dove, all three of the members of the Trinity were involved, watch them relate, and as the Father says, you're my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. What's being, what's being said there? What's the nature of the pouring? You see, when you understand the pouring of the Father into the Son, then you understand what the Son endured on the cross on our behalf, because for those few hours, the pouring stopped. And the Son was in agony, because he and the Father, for those few moments, didn't have a connection that had been there for all eternity. And he did that, so you and I would never be able to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Only Jesus could say that, never a believer. Because he said it in our place. That's the substitutionary atonement. 